So if there's anything that people in our culture love is they love a good story. And specifically, they like good stories that have good endings. No one really likes the story, if they were to be honest with themselves, that ends in a bleak and tragic way. No one really likes hearing a story of a man slipping into despair, slipping into failure, not living up to potential. People don't like to hear those stories. People don't like the stories of where the man doesn't end up with the girl in the end. They may grip us in the, in the memorable way that they end, but deep down they, what they do is they stir a sense of fear and hopelessness within us. We may remember stories like Romeo and Juliet, the tragedy of how they, they don't end up together in the end and both end up dying. A more recent example of a tragedy would be Star Wars Episode Three, when Anakin finally becomes Darth Vader. And then no matter how many times you watch it, Mace Windu is not going to beat Palpatine. No matter how many times you watch or read Romeo and Juliet, they're not going to end up together. But we hope against hope that somehow this time the ending will change. Because what we truly like and want is a story that has a good ending. And it's because we want our story to have a good ending. We want the end of our story to be a good end. Not a tragic one. Not a bleak one. But a good ending. Jesus was known for his stories. He told many stories. And he told some good ones that had great endings that we still teach and talk about this day. Like the story of a shepherd who's shepherding a hundred sheep and he realizes that one is lost. So he leaves the 99 to search after the one and he finds the one before the enemies had gotten to him and he puts them on his shoulders and he carries them back to the flock and all is well. Or the story of the prodigal son where the, the son re, uh, rebels against his father, leaves and goes into the countryside and wastes his life on sin. But he, would, he recognizes his foolishness and he returns and he returns to the father and the father runs out and meets him and grabs him and embraces him and he welcomes him back into his home. That's a good story that has a good ending, at least for the younger son. The older son is a little bit different. But Jesus told stories that had good endings, but he also told stories that had incredibly bleak endings, incredibly tragic Endings. The story that we're going to be looking at today is Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And the story ends with a man showing up to a wedding feast, not dressed in the wedding garments that were provided for him, but dressed in his own garments. And that man was cast into hell, the place of outer darkness, the place of eternal weeping and pain or gnashing of the teeth. That's how the story ended for that man. That's how the story will end for many men throughout history. Being cast into the outer darkness of hell. How do we avoid that ending for our story? How do we know that we possess eternal life? To know the answer to that question, we know how this story ends but let's look at how it began. And it says in verse 1, And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, them being the Pharisees and the people of Jews. Jesus has been sharing these, these parables as a part of the last week of his life. He's preparing for the cross. He knows that it's ahead of him, and he's sharing these stories with them. And he goes on to say, he says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, 
and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been through a wedding planning season, I know many of you have, it's not fun. <laughs> it's, it's just horrible. It's, just the, it's the worst. It's the worst. And Taylor and I, we've been married for two years. My brother and his fiance, they're here today. Uh, he's engaged. They got engaged in May. And let me tell you, I don't envy them for a second. <laughs> he called me one time asking me some questions about something. I said, hey, man, I'm sorry. I'm not going to be your help here. You just do what mom said or whatever. And, and it's just because wedding planning is just stressful. You got to hammer out all the details, the venue, the food, get everything together, make sure you're inviting people that need to be invited, making sure you're not forgetting somebody. And you, a lot of work goes into it. And, and it ends up being this beautiful event that's a huge event. The family's there. You got this, the, the dress, the, you know, the, the people are dressed up, food. It's just, it's just a great celebration. But as big as weddings are in our culture, the wedding that Jesus talks about in this story was even bigger. Because in that culture, it was not uncommon for a wedding feast to last a week or even a couple weeks if you were a little bit more wealthy. But this is the king, and it's his son. This wedding feast, would have, it would have been the, the social event of social events. It would have been the best food, the best people. It would have been the thing to be at, the place to be, the party of parties. And he sends out the invitation, and he heard back from the people saying, yes, we'll be there. And then it comes time for the wedding feast to come. And so he sends his servants out. That's what's happening in verse 3. They've already RSVP'd yes. And he's sending them out to remind them. Because back then they didn't have Outlook or something that would remind you, hey, you got a wedding coming up in a week. It was, it was, they would send servants out to remind them, hey, the wedding, the wedding feast is coming. So when they go out to those who were invited to the wedding feast, it says that they would not come. This was the wedding of the king. And they said, no, we're not going to go. It's like if you would have got an invitation to uh, William and Kate's wedding and said, hey, I'm not going to go to that. You know, the Queen of England just invited me to a wedding, but I'm not going to go. It would have been highly offensive. And the king would have had every right to punish, punish his subjects at that moment. But he didn't. It says in verse 4, this is what he did. It says, again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited. He gathers his servants. He says, tell those who were invited. That word tell is, in, is an imperative that's in a sense that is uh, typically used when an inferior is addressing a superior, particularly in the Bible in prayer. So it's like if I were to ask God for wisdom, and I, it's something that I know that I deeply need, and I'm asking God for wisdom, and I say, Lord, give me wisdom. I'm not commanding God to give me wisdom, but the urgency of my request that I know is so desperate that I need, it, it comes out as an imperative. Lord, give me wisdom. I'm not in a position to tell him to do anything, but I'm asking him in a way that just displays the, the heartfeltness and the urgency of my request. But this is not from an inferior to a superior, but a superior to an inferior. He tells his servants, and he's telling his subjects this invitation. And what that communicates is even a deeper sense of love, a plea, an entreaty. He's, he's communicating in this command. He's saying, tell my People, tell the people who I invited that the wedding feast is wet, ready. It's a deep love that drives his invitation. It communicates the urgency and the heartfelt na nature of the invitation. And he says, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. 
come to the wedding feast. He, the king knew the poverty of his subjects. He knew that they couldn't bring their own food. It wasn't going to be like a potluck dinner on Sunday night. It was, it was I've got it all handled. I've prepared everything. Not only, and you're not having, you're not having goat. You're having the, the, the supreme, prime. I've slaughtered my fat calves, my oxen. It's going to be a marvelous feast. Come. But it says they did not care. They paid no attention. And the first group, it says this about them. It says they went off, one to his farm and another to his business. This first group was so caught up with what was in front of them. Things were too pressing in their little circle that they missed the invitation of the king. They were so focused on the temporary that they missed the glorious feast that was being offered to them. I'm afraid that many in our culture are just this way. In fact, some of you may have been thinking about your work the entire time I've been speaking. What you need to get done today, what you need to get done this week, let me tell you, the enemy would love, I mean, he would just love if you missed the eternal because you were so focused on the, the temporary. Nothing when the king invites you to a feast, nothing is more important. Not your work, not family, not football, not school. Nothing is more important than responding to the invitation from the king. That was the first group. The second group were just rebellious. They seized his servants and they treated them shamefully and they just killed them. Just to, to reject the invitation is offensive enough, but to seize them and to treat them shamefully and to abuse them and kill them was the height of the penalty. And that is what the people of Israel had done to the prophets. It's what they did to the Son, Jesus. And it's what they did to the apostles afterwards. They were presuming that the kindness and the patience of God would last forever. In their arrogance, they were saying, there is no God, there will be no punishment, there will be no judgment for my actions. So they lived how they wanted to be, in total rebellion. Some of you here today may be in that rebellion stage. You have no care for the things of God. In fact, when people try to talk to you about the things of God's word, you get angry. You don't want to hear it. You don't listen to it. You just say, I'm glad that you're here today. Because, you know, I was too rebellious to the things of God. I, too, thought that I knew better, that I would, there would be no penalty for my sin, and I lived how I wanted to live. And let me tell you, the grace of the Lord sought me out, and he opened my eyes to my foolishness, and he poured out his love into me, and I responded in repentance, and life came into my, flowed through my veins. I don't care if you hate God for whatever reason. He loves you. And the invitation extends to you as well. But the people in the story, they didn't see it. So they rejected the invitation. And the patience ran up. Because the king became angry. And he sent his troops and he destroyed those murderers and he burned their city. God is a just God. He is patient and he is loving and he is kind, but he is also just. 
and he punishes sin. He will forgive sin, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And these people did not accept his invitation. So he destroyed their city. This is both a a prophecy towards A.D. 70 when the city of Jerusalem would be burned by the the Romans, but it's also even looking further to when the Lord Lord returns and he judges those who are not found in him. Everything will be burnt up. Everything that we build will be burnt up if it's not built on the foundation of Christ. But the story shifts in verse 8, moving in a historical sense from the people of Israel to the Gentiles. Moving from the people who received the covenants of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and their descendants. Moving from them to those who uh, are the Greeks, the Gentiles, the Romans, those people. And he says, Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go. The verbs have now shifted from the past tense to the present tense. He says, Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. When, he sh- when the king shifts his, his, his tense from the past to the present, it's a, it's a fundamental shift. Because when there's a present and, an imper- and it's an imperative, it continues on. The invitation that the king is extending continues to this day. And it is still as just as heartfelt and just as urgent as it was to the people of Israel. It continues to this day. And who is it for? Anybody. Everybody. The bad and the good. Whether you think that you've lived a bad life or you think that you've lived a good life, it doesn't matter because you're still separated from the king. And you're not good enough. And and there's nothing that you've done that's too bad that would prevent you from accepting the king's invitation. It stands today and it stands to go out to you because, because God and his heartfelt love for you invites you to experience the abundance of a relationship with Jesus Christ today. He invites you because he loves you to experience the abundance of an eternal relationship with him and his son Jesus today. And that should blow your mind because God is a holy and righteous God. He created everything He called Abraham out of darkness and said, I'm going to bless you and in you all the families will be blessed. And then the people of Israel rejected him. And when he created man, we were created to reflect his image perfectly. Yet now we sinned and we've gone astray and we reflect brokenness. But he offers a way out through his son, Jesus. Why do we need to go through Jesus? Why him? Why do we need a relationship? It's because we're not good. No one is righteous, the Bible says. Not even one. 
Your good works won't outweigh your bad works. It's not like there's this tightrope between this earth and then heaven over there. And there's a chasm of hell beneath. And you're trying to walk this tightrope. And every sin that you commit is a, a burden added to you. And every good thing that you do is a burden lifted. That's not how the gospel works. There is no tightrope. You take one step and you cast yourself down into hell. And the only thing for those of you who are not in Christ that's holding you back from that eternal punishment is God's grace. The fact that you're sitting in this room today, if you're not a believer and you're hearing this message, is the grace of God. The fact that some of you who know Christ and and have eternal life, that is the grace of God. No one is righteous, not even one. But the God of Abraham made a way. And he took on flesh and he walked among us. And his name was Jesus. He is the eternal God and he is also man. Both God and man, 100% God, 100% man all the time. And he lived the perfect life that we are called to live. He upheld it perfectly. God's law, he fulfilled. Not even once did he sin. He was tempted in every way that we were, but he didn't sin once. No thought, no word, no action went against his father. Not even once. And he lived that perfect life in our place. But then his own people rejected him, and they delivered him up to be crucified. And the Romans agreed, and they delivered him up to be crucified. So both Jews and Gentiles rejected the Son of God. And he died a death on the cross. And on the cross, not only did he just take a a brutal physical death, but God in his justice and in his wrath turned his face upon his son, and he poured out his anger, his wrath. His justice onto him. And the Son of God died. And he bore the punishment of our sin in our place. We were called to live the righteous life and we couldn't. So God did. We were called to bear the, we were, as a result, we were required to bear the punishment of our sin, but God did for us. And then three days later, In a glorious day, the tomb split open and the Son of God arose and he rose in victory because death could not keep him down because he is God and the price of sin had been paid and Satan was defeated and death was defeated and now sin was. And he offers eternal life and forgiveness and and, and freedom from shame. To any who would turn from their sins and place their trust in him. He gives that to you. That is the king's invitation. It is the gospel. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God is not a God that is distant from creation. Who is unknowable. But he took on flesh. So that we might have a relationship with him. And experience the forgiveness and the freedom that is found in Christ Jesus. That is the abundant invitation that the king is extending to us today. To any who would accept the invitation the right way. So what is the right way? And that leads us to the last part of our story. It says, but when the king came in, he looked 
at the guest. And he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The dress code called for tuxedos, and this guy showed up in a tuxedo shirt and flip-flops. And when the king questioned him, because this would have been very offensive, just as offensive as rejecting the invitation, when the king questioned him about it, he said he was speechless. He did not have a response, which shows that he didn't have an excuse. The king must have had out everything that he made away for everything that he needed. He didn't say, I couldn't afford one. He didn't say, I didn't have enough time to get one, or I didn't have one. The king had made every provision, but this man chose his own way. He chose his own way, and he paid the price for it. So what do the wedding garments symbolize? Well, Jesus doesn't say in this passage, but I think there's some texts in Revelation that give clarity to it. The first is Revelation 7, verses 13 and 14. Then the one of the elders addressed me, saying, What, who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Our righteousness, our good works is worthless, it is filthy. It is disgustingly unrighteous before a holy God. Like a kid who's covered in smelly mud in a white room and and white carpet and white furniture. That's what we look like in our sin, in our our unjust cleanliness before a holy God. And that's how we're born into this world. And if we try to get into heaven based on good works alone... We will fall desperately, utterly short. We are not good enough. There is nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. You will never be righteous enough. Just one sin, one misstep, one bad thought separates you eternally from Christ. And the wages of sin is death, eternal death. But the gift of God is eternal life. That is received through faith in Jesus Christ. By faith we trust in his righteousness. Not our own. We put our hope in his sacrifice. For our sins. Recognizing that there's nothing that we can do. To earn God's love for us. Or to earn his favor. But we completely rest. In the sacrifice. In the finished work of Christ. It is all him. The feast has been prepared. The, the cow has been slaughtered. Everything is ready. We bring nothing to the table. It is faith, by faith, I mean by grace, through faith in Jesus. That's how we wash our robes and make them clean. Because it's not us making them clean. It's not us washing them. But it is Christ and his blood washing us, making us clean. But there's another passage, and it comes at the end. The actual marriage supper 
of the Lamb and His church. And it's in verse, chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. It says, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Genuine faith in Christ that puts your hope in Him for His righteousness always reveals itself in life transformation. Because James says that faith without works is dead. Faith reveals itself in a life that is transformed. Because the moment one believes the Spirit of God comes and indwells your body so that God has made His dwelling place with man within you, and you are now the temple of God, and the Spirit begins to work within you to transform you and to conform you into the image of Christ from the moment you become a believer. So that each day you are being chipped away. It's a messy process. But if over time... If you're into following Christ for, so, for some time, you'll look back over your life and you'll see the Spirit working in your life. Now, in the moment, you may not see it right around you, but you can look back and see how God has worked in your life in the past. So let me tell you, if you believe that you have come to faith in Christ and you look at your life and you look at how you live before Christ and you look at how you live now and there is no difference whatsoever, let me tell you, you are probably not a believer and you're probably still dead in your sins, and you're going to be like this man who shows up, and he says, Lord, Lord, and Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Do not fool yourselves. Faith in Jesus always reveals itself. It is not based on works. It is by grace through faith, but the Spirit comes and indwells you, and he transforms you. If you think that you can... You can profess Christ and hold on to your past life and live in idolatry and live in sin, you are fooling yourself. You cannot worship two gods. You must either choose one and hate the other or choose the other and hate the one. You cannot love both God and money. You cannot love both God and fill in the blank. We're called to surrender, to place our faith in Him for His righteousness, not our own. And to yield to the transforming work of the Spirit in our lives. Because those God calls, He saves. Those He saves, He transforms. Those He transforms, He will ultimately glorify one day. That's the process of the Christian life. And once it begins, it completes itself. I'm afraid that many potentially in this room, may miss the invitation. We must respond to the invitation the right way, which is through faith in Jesus that is revealed in the transformed life. We cannot miss the invitation that goes out. It is heartfelt and it is urgent. Because Jesus then talks about hell in verse 13. He says, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a real place. It is a reality that, unfortunately, many people will experience. And our culture tries to deny its existence. 
oftentimes we may try to deny his existence. Not maybe, maybe verbally, but in our practice. In the way that we live and interact with people who, are, who could be potentially lost. Hell is a reality and it will be a place of just total darkness. A darkness that can be felt. Be full of regret, anger, bitterness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, the grinding of the teeth that one does in pain to try to relieve the pain, but it does nothing to relieve the pain, yet actually causes more pain. That is the eternal destination of those who do not know Jesus. You may say that's harsh. God is the holy God. And he has made a way so clear. He's prepared everything. It's through his son Jesus. Because he's not just warning of hell, but he's inviting us to experience abundant life with him. Both today and in the future. Eternal life is what is the, is the invitation that goes out today. It's clear. It's through his son Jesus. Yet people reject it. Some are too busy. Some just oppose it. Some try to do it their own way. Either by earning it or by thinking that they can have it both ways. We must respond to the invitation the right way. We cannot miss it. Cannot miss it. Because Jesus concludes... With a sad, sad conclusion. You know, just our Lord who just loves these people deeply. And in just a few chapters, we're going to see him weep over Jerusalem, saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, only you would have just returned. I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks. You know, he's just heartbroken as he's looking around to these Pharisees who are about to crucify him, who claim to know. The word of God, yet the word is standing in their presence and they don't even recognize him. And he gives this conclusion. For many are called, but few chosen. Now he uses these words differently than Paul would in Romans or other books. Because when he says called, it's, it's, it's more on the, the human focus rather than the, the divine focus. But he says called for many hear the invitation. Many hear the gospel. But few respond in the way that reveals that they are citizens of the kingdom of God. Few are chosen. Few respond in faith. Few live in faith. Many hear the gospel. Few surrender it to it. That's Jesus' conclusion. And he looks at these people who thought that they were the many who thought that they were accepting the invitation, but in fact they were rejecting it. And the same that is true of them today is true of us. Many hear the call to the gospel. Many are invited to experience the abundance of eternal life, but few respond the right way in faith that leads to life transformation, so few have eternal life. And the question today that is the most important question that you could ask yourself is which are you? Which are you? I don't care if you're 10 or 90. The invitation goes out to you today. 
And the question needs to be answered. Have you responded to Jesus in faith? If you're like these first group right here that's just too busy, too caught up in the things of this world, I'm telling you, what you're focusing on is not as important as responding to the gospel. The things that are in front of you, I don't care what it is. That you say, I just don't have time for Jesus right now. I don't have time to let the gospel radically change who I am. I don't have time for that right now. Let me tell you, it's the only thing that you should have time for. It's the most important thing that you can do. So I invite you to come and, and, and come to Jesus in faith and experience a life of true significance. If you're just plainly rebellious to the things of God, I want you to know that God loves you. He cares for you. He invites you with a deep, heartfelt urgency to come to his son, to come to Jesus and experience life and peace and broken, I mean, not brokenness, but in restoration. No longer will you have to live in brokenness. No longer do you have to, to live in the bondage of sin and shame, but you can have freedom. Come to Jesus today. If you're like this man at the end, in either one of the two ways, and you're trusting in your own righteousness to get you into heaven, and you're saying, I've lived a good life, I'll be fine, do not be fooled. Do not be deceived. You are not good enough. I am not good enough. No one is good enough. Our righteousness is like filthy rags before the Lord. Trust in His righteousness alone and experience the approval of God. Maybe you've deceived yourself and you're holding on to your past life and you're trying to live the double life. You're not letting... You're, 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 the gospel is just fire insurance. It's not transformative. It's not something that you really are putting your faith in. It's just something that you, you do. Don't be deceived. Don't be like this man that shows up in a tuxedo shirt, flip-flops. Don't be one who has to hear, depart from me, for I never knew you. The enemy is great at deceiving. If I was any of these men, I was the one who thought that he was good. But my life wasn't transformed. And by the grace of God, my eyes were opened to the truth of the gospel. And I became a believer when, when I was 15 on New Year's Eve, 2010. And you know what my first thought was when I first was standing there and I felt the Spirit calling me to come to faith. You know what it was? What will people think of me? They already thought I was a believer. It was embarrassment. Let me tell you that. If you're feeling that right now, that is the enemy of, of enemies who is trying to keep you from the kingdom of God. Who cares if you haven't been a believer? So far, come to Jesus today and experience life. Do not let embarrassment or shame keep you from the kingdom of God. No matter how old or how young you are. If you feel the Spirit calling you to salvation today, respond. Who cares if people think that you were a believer before? Who cares? 
Respond to Jesus. Come to Jesus. In a moment, we're about to have a time of invitation. And I'm going to walk with those who are deciding to surrender to Jesus today. I'm going to walk through a prayer with you. You can follow along with me or you can do something completely different because the words that I will be saying are not some magical formula that gets you saved. But it's an opportunity for you to approach a holy God in faith. To recognize your shortcomings and your sin and your failure and to put your faith in his son, Jesus, and receive eternal life. And we have a card in the handout that looks like this. Let us know if that's you today. Fill it out. Write your phone number. Check these boxes and, and let us know so we can walk alongside you in this walk. Because the enemy tries to attack those who hear the gospel and who respond. And we want to help you, to help you grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want to walk alongside you. We're going to have some people down front. There'll be a guy in the back at the end of the service if you, if you want to just take it to him and talk with him. We want to walk through this, this journey with you. And we want to be there as a resource and as a brother or a sister who can, who can walk in this life and be encouraged by one another. Not as one who has it all figured out, but as one who is going to the wedding feast themselves. Learning from one another. That's what we want to happen. If you are a believer in this room, the servants and the guests in this story are the same. The servants that he says go and to tell the people on the roads are also the people who are going to be wedding guests there themselves. And Matthew, you know, is working towards his great commission at the end, and he tells you who are in Christ to go. Therefore, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We hear the gospel, we believe the gospel, and then we share the gospel. Pray for those in this room who may not know Christ, that they may respond with boldness. Let's pray together. Father, I'm about to pray alongside those who may be deciding to come to know you. Father, you are so holy and righteous, and I'm now aware of just how unholy and unrighteous I am. God, I am a sinner cut off from you. But Father, you sent your son, Jesus. You made the way for salvation. He died taking my punishment. And he rose again in victory. And to those who place their faith in him, you give eternal life. Father, today I place my faith in Jesus. And I surrender to him. Receive the promise of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me of my sins and save me from my, the punishment that I deserve. Because your son, Jesus, paid the price. Father, I ask this in faith, in the Father, in the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray for those who may have just prayed that with me.
pray that they would be bold to bold enough to come to one of our ministers to talk with someone to walk with uh, with us as we pursue you Lord we give you this time we ask that your spirit would move in the hearts and the feet of the people here in Jesus name I pray Amen